I used to see her make gift baskets for people. I didn't understand anything about the credit score. It's kind of been the common denominator amongst everybody on the team at this point is they all were affected by credit and like, yeah, that sucks. I've, I've always loved the the level of accountability it is, right? Like for the money in your pocket is like a direct correlation of what you've done. And then I was like the internet guy. So like you could make higher commissions. I looked and it was like the exact thing. I was like, oh my goodness, this already exists. It was heartbroken. I was really naive when it comes to building a backable business versus a bankable business. There's no, hey, auntie, let me get 25000 real quick. Like, there's there's none of that. The Katie Credit conversations just started with balconies and beers. A year ago, it wasn't necessarily cool to say you're a Miami-based business. Now it's like the greatest thing you could say. So what we're aiming to do is simplify FICO so you understand it before you actually need it. What's up on Found Nation? Dan Kihanya here. Thanks so much for checking out another episode of Founders Unfound. That was Evan Leapart, founder and CEO of Kitty Credit, a mobile chore tracking app that teaches kids about credit. Evan is one of those founders seemingly born to be just that, a founder. From lemonade stands and snow removal to cleaning services and auto transport, he's been fearlessly taking on venture after venture. Evan grew up in Columbia City, shout out to Baltimore, but he's been in Miami for over 15 years. So he's definitely an OG in the newly blossoming Miami tech scene. And to top it off, we had a wonderful guest co-host, Veronica Parks, from well-known venture fund Mavron. Veronica is one of their newest investors, coming from a career spanning venture and consulting, and it all started with her undergrad from Howard University. We were grateful to have her help us with this conversation for sure. Our episode is sponsored by Cascadia Clean Tech Accelerator, powered by Virtual Lab and Clean Tech Alliance. This 15-week accelerator program delivers mentorship, connections, funding opportunities, and more to early-stage clean tech startups looking to launch and scale their businesses. Applications are open until April 16th, 2021. To apply today, find a link in the show notes or go to CascadiaCleanTech.org. Our episode is also sponsored by Afroblocks, the global pan-African freelance marketplace and collaboration platform, a great resource for devs, designers, and virtual assistants. Check out the link in the show notes. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcast. We are available anywhere you get your podcasts, even YouTube. And if you like what you hear, drop us a review on Apple or at Podchaser.com. It's March 2021, and we are hopeful that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel with this pandemic. There are still many suffering, though, directly now or from the economic or health after effects of COVID. So let's all remain vigilant and compassionate. My heart is also pretty heavy today as we've just had seven mass shootings in the last seven days here in the U.S. Solutions to this different kind of crisis seem to evade us. But for me, it all starts with empathy and appreciation. We are all Americans. And unless you are indigenous, we all have a heritage that originates from outside this country. Yet we all share a common bond and belief in the idea and principles of what America is. Asian Americans, African Americans, European Americans, we are all still Americans. Your neighbors, your co-workers, your fellow citizens, your community, your family. Against this foundation, we can celebrate, not resent our differences. And violence is never an answer. It starts with reaching out to those with differences you can see. Strive to understand them, appreciate them, love them. We can't legislate community, but we can vigorously pursue it. Now, on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. 
We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented and underestimated backgrounds. This is episode number 29 in our continuing series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. For this episode, we actually have a special guest host, Veronica Parks. She's an investor with legendary venture firm Mavron. Thanks for joining the conversation, Veronica. Absolutely, Dan. Excited to be here. And today we have Evan Leapart, founder and CEO of Kitty Credit, a mobile chore tracking app that teaches kids about credit. Welcome to the show, Evan. We're super excited to have you on. Thanks for making the time. Thank you. I appreciate you both having me. All right. Well, let's start off by helping the listeners understand what, what is Kitty Credit. It's one of those names that seems self-explanatory, but uh, why don't you just give us a quick synopsis? What is Kitty Credit? So like you said, it's a, intended to be a chore tracking app that teaches kids about credit. The premise of it is the better a kid does their chores, the better their quote unquote credit score. So you want to think of a missed chore activity like a missed payment. The longer you've had this activity, your chores, like the longer you've had a credit card and anytime a kid's going, hey, mom, can I get this? Hey, dad, can I get this? It's essentially like an inquiry. So what we're aiming to do is simplify FICO so you understand it before you actually need it. I think it's brilliant. I, I mean, I, I wish I had it when I was a kid because I you know I definitely went through my 20s with like the wake up call of, oh, that's a score I got to pay attention to. And I have no idea <laughs> how I'm affecting it. So before we, we dive more into the company, though, let's hear a little bit about your background. Where, where did you grow up and where are you from? Yep. So I was born in Pittsburgh, big Steelers fan. And I grew up right outside of Baltimore in the city, Columbia. Um, I lived there until I was about 18 years old. And then I moved to Miami. I, I came to Miami in 2004. Went to FIU, didn't finish, but I went there. I just fell in love with the city and have, have been here ever since. Brief stint in LA for like a year, but I've been in Miami pretty much my whole adult life. That's cool. So, but like, let's go back to go, growing up in Columbia City. And uh, do you have brothers and sisters, or I'm the only child, my man. So there's those perks. A little, be a little spoiled at times, uh, but you know, you you can either be a real extrovert because you just have to make friends because you don't have a brother or sister. So I'm kind of I fall along those lines uh, versus being more of a recluse. But yeah, my you know my mom was a flight attendant, uh, so she was gone a lot when I was younger. So I had to really be it, it developed a strong sense of independence. You know, so I think that's part of where I got my entrepreneurial spirit from one being on my own, but two, also she was very entrepreneurial minded. So I used to, I used to see her make gift baskets for people and learn how to, to make shirts for people. So I learned how to like measure for dress shirts. And I would start doing that when I was younger too. So I got a lot of, a lot of cool gifts and gems from my mother. So I always find it fascinating. So what's it like to have a parent who's a flight attendant? Like, you know, all your friends have, you know, parents that have like nine to five jobs, they show up, you know, for the after school stuff or for the cookouts and your mom is like gone for three days and then back for a couple of days. Like, did it feel like different or did it just feel normal? Like this is just the way our lives are. Yeah, it was just my life, right? Like, you know, like my mom and uh, like it was it was a really normal childhood to me. Right. But if you look at it on paper, it was different. Right. So like my, my mom and dad divorced when I was I don't even remember the age. I think it was like two or three, but they had a perfect coexisting relationship as parents. So it wasn't there was really no friction. But like when she was gone, you know, she would make she did everything that she could. Right. She had the leftovers for three to four days. So I would heat them up. So it's not like I went without meals and I didn't you know, I didn't take advantage of it or anyway, at least in my younger years. When I got a little like 17, 18, it went a little in the <laughs> <laughs> but but when I was younger, I was I was super responsible. Um, so I think we just kind of had this mutual admiration and respect for one another. I knew that she was gone, so I'd take care of the house, you know. And and I I just knew that she was doing the best that she could to make sure that we had a 
place to live and, and, you know, food to eat. That's a lot of responsibility, though, as a young person. You know, these days, kids are, you know, they're almost never out of the the eye shot of some adult, right? I mean, to grow up kind of fending for yourself, you know, obviously your mom made sure that you were safe, but that's a that's a pretty big deal to be that independent. I mean, and it was when I was like younger, younger, like, you know, elementary school years had babysitters and stuff. But from middle school onward, it kind of, you know, I, there was nights where it would just be and just be me. So tell us more about like how your entrepreneurial self emerged. Because you talked about yourself being entrepreneurial at a young age. How did that show up? I think the first thing I did was I had a lemonade stand when I was younger. I, I, was, I actually had one, right? Like this kind of like the, the, the perennial start of, <laughs> of the journey. Uh, that was that was mine. But I used to look forward to snow days, not just because I would go sledding with friends. Like I knew that I could get outside and I could shovel snow. And, uh, and, and I'd be first one out there. I had like little business cards. I'll tear up sheets of paper. And I'll go out and charge like $20 per car. And, you know, all of a sudden, fingers frozen, toes frozen. But I got like $200 in my pocket. But yeah, that's where I got my start. That's great. Yeah, I, I did the same thing. Yeah, I lived in Boston. And uh, yeah, when that snow came and and I lived in this apartment complex, I was like within 100 yards of my house, I could hit 20 houses and be rich with whatever, you know, tens of dollars that they would give me. Mine was the opposite. It was when is spring and summer coming so I can mow people's lawns. Yep. It's, it's something though. It's like, okay, you start looking at your neighbors like, okay, that's $20. They're cheap. That's that's $10, $30. They like the tip. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, I, and I imagine that, you know, the feedback loop that you get from like, I'm going to start something, I'm going to go directly to have somebody pay for it is a powerful lesson in learning, right? That you can get. And for some people, maybe it's just like, yeah, that was fun. And I hustled a little bit. For other people, they, you know, probably get kind of drawn to it. It's like, I want to keep doing that. Is that kind of where you you went? Is like, I like this hustle, entrepreneurial, doing my own thing. I've, I've always loved the the level of like accountability it is, right? Like for the money in your pocket is like a direct correlation of what you've done, right? So like it, for me, it's always been if I'm a work and it's not being an entrepreneur, I always like being a sales rep because I felt that how hard I worked was a direct correlation to how much money I could make. So like commission, it was never a problem for me to make a little less in salary because I knew that I could make more in commission. And then like to give you another entrepreneurial example, when I was a kid, I learned how to make a computer from scratch. I think I was like 14 or 15, not just because I was overly interested in computers. I wanted to have the fastest CD burner in school so I could burn CDs and sell them to my friends. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So you figured out how to build a computer so that you could essentially create a CD manufacturing station. Yes, absolutely. So I remember clear as day. So we had Pentium 4. I think the CD burner was like TDX and it was like 40X, which was like the fastest at the time and had like the sound card and a bunch of stuff that I didn't really need in it. I think the the hard drive was like by then standards, large is probably like 256 megabytes. I, I don't remember that. Right. But it was uh, but it was enough to be able to like outburn my my friends and, and sell mixed CDs for seven dollars instead of five because I had the jewel cases instead of the paper ones. Wow. It did it work. I was doing OK, man. I was I was I could say I was pulling in like 30 to 50 dollars a day as a kid. You know, I see this arc where, you know, you are destined to be an entrepreneur. If if it wasn't from birth, it was sort of like early on, you had all these experiences. And again, I think there's this mastery that you can get just by doing these businesses, which at the time probably seemed like, you know, you probably 
probably felt like king of the world making 30 bucks a day. When you look back on it, you're like, yeah, you know, that that was that was the stepping stones. That was my training camp, my training for this where I am today. So when you were coming out of high school, did you feel like you were going to continue to be an entrepreneur or were you thinking college was going to be, you know, I'll learn something and I major in something and then I'll go get a job doing that? How, how did you think about it as you were entering college? Well, I, w- I went to school for entrepreneurship. That was like what I was intended to have my, my major be. But I mean, I, I was young and like I was in Miami. So like I, I my college career was not really that that focused, you know, but I always had entrepreneurial goals. I was actually saving up to buy at the time. It would have really actually it would have been a cool idea. It was an ATM franchise and I wanted to have like three ATMs and I wanted to put them in nightclubs. There really weren't ATMs in nightclubs at the time, but I just, I didn't have enough money to do it. Yeah. And then I think from there, once I realized that I just, I wasn't paying enough attention to my studies, I took a sales job. I was selling for the Yellow Pages, the Verizon Yellow Pages. It was like the, the youngest person they'd ever hired in this position. I couldn't go to happy hours with my coworkers, but I was killing it because everybody was selling the Yellow Pages. And then I was like the internet guy. So like you could make higher commissions on the, I think it was called Super Pages. So I would still do the Yellow Pages because it was required. But the internet, because there was no, like the cost to develop was a lot less for them. The commissions could be higher. When you're young, people were like, oh, you know about that internet stuff. So I got a lot of, you know, about the the internet stuff, sales. What was driving you to try these different kind of entrepreneurial endeavors? It sounds like you graduated from lemonade stand to building your own computer to seeking out potentially buying an ATM franchise. What was the driving force behind all of that? I mean, I think it just goes back to my mom and just seeing her always try something, you know, like I've, I've always been a, a person that just needs to kind of like be a free spirit, you know, so like I could I didn't want to be in like a work environment. So I'm like, what? Well, if I have to be in a work environment, where can I still feel like I'm not? So that was where, you know, sales came in. And then I developed sales skills when I was younger. I took a telemarketing job when I was 15 years old, 16 years old, me and a bunch of my friends, we all worked at this place called Protocol. We would sell like Sprint DSL, some other thing, like some energy company and stuff. But we, you know, we just all kind of honed our ability to sell during that time. And I would just say that I I just like seeing a reward come from like me conveying something, uh, you know, or or like building a product or like selling a product. Like I I do get like true validation and, and gratification from that. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, they say that some of the best entrepreneurs are unemployable, right? It's just they can't be buttoned down into these do this, do that and have a bunch of bosses and things. So I I sense that spirit in you of, yeah, let let me get connected to a customer and and let me just have at it. So I don't know if everybody (laughs) even knows what the Yellow Pages is. It's a kind of an antiquated thing in the age of Google and Yelp, but you know they used to have these books, right? That people got delivered to their house or to their businesses once or twice a year, and had all the phone numbers and and ads in them. So tell us, so the journey between that first experience you had coming out of college, and I can understand how you were restless there too. To Kitty Credit, like what's the bridge in your career of the things that you've done? between those two periods? So during that time, which is many different ebbs and flows, transitions between a business idea, going back to work, business idea, going back to work. Funny story, I was super naive. When I when I left Verizon Yellow Page, I think I had like, like $8,000 saved. So I was like, okay, cool. Got a long runway here. <laughs> we'll be fine. <laughs> and then um, 
I had this business idea. It was called Strios. It was an acronym for shirts that reflect an individual's own style. And what it was intended to be was a t-shirt company where basically people would draw their designs and then they would vote on them and whatever got the most votes would be kind of the shirt design. So I was like, well, it's a baked in audience. Clearly, if people like the design, they'll buy the shirt. And I thought I was like the only person ever with it. Clearly, like naive, young, no market research, wrote out this long business plan. At that time, that's when business plans were supposed to be 30 to 40 pages. And then um, somebody was like, wait, that's like threadless. And I looked and it was like the exact thing. I was like, oh, my goodness, this already exists. I was heartbroken. I, I had this business plan. I was like, look, so this this money, this will give me like four or five months. I had a business plan for like a million dollars. I was like, I'll raise this in about two weeks. And then, and then like, you know, we'll get started. I was like, what, 21 years old at the time. How'd that go, raising a million dollars in two weeks? I don't think I raised a million pennies. <laughs> like, I was nowhere close. I don't think I raised anything at all, honestly. And then um, I was like, well, it's time to get back to work. So I got back to work. And then years down the line, I used that same name. And I was telling you, my mom taught me how to measure for dress shirts. It, it became the name for the dress shirt. So I did that for a little while and that was okay. But during this process, like, right, of working, doing these things, I, you know, mind you, this job history is, is definitely not good for when it comes to trying to make a purchase like a home or anything like that. But when I, when I came to college, I got like credit cards right away and I fell into debt and understand anything about credit, right? So to bring all this together and like kind of the, the thesis for creating kitty credit was I saw how bad my credit score got, like it got terrible. And part of it was, yeah, I made financial mistakes, but Secondly, like I didn't understand anything about the credit score. And in my business ideas, like if I wanted to get access to capital, I was never really able to do it. My credit score was too low. So I was like, man, there, there's people with Facebook level ideas out here, but they don't have any means to an end to be able to execute upon these ideas. There's no, hey, auntie, let me get 25,000 real quick. Like there's, there's none of that. I mean, now we have crowdfunding, so things are getting a little easier. But back then, it was like, if you didn't have any access to startup capital, you kind of really just stayed where you were at. Kitty credit was something that I, I thought about like 10 years ago. Uh, I was like, man, how do we teach kids about credit in a way like they understand it before it's actually an issue? And it's not just something you learn in like one class and then you forget it, like most of the classes that we do when we're growing up. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting how like we have all this massive industries around SATs and doing well in school and all these things that sort of prepare you to be, you know, I guess a student, <laughs> right? But these life skills, um, you know, when I was a kid, we had a home economics. Yeah, home ec. Yeah. Right. And, and they, they taught us what a bank account was. I mean, they didn't tell us about credit, but at least there was some like this is kind of how interest works. And they also taught us how to sew and some other things, but and how to cook. But yeah. So let's let's definitely dive more into the origin story of Kitty Credit. But we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Evan Lee Part from Kitty Credit. You're a visionary founder building the next big thing. But your ever-growing to-do list is slowing you down. Well, lucky for you, getting things done just got easier. Introducing Afriblocks. Afriblocks can connect you with the top freelance talent in all of Africa, and they will manage the project for you. We have vetted thousands of software developers, graphic designers, social media managers, and virtual assistants who can help you save time, save money, and build better. Get it done right the first time. Visit afriblocks.com and tell us Dan sent you to get 10% off your first job. So we're back with Evan from Kitty Credit. 
Evan, why don't you tell us, so obviously you had a personal experience that was sort of part of the kernel for the idea for Kitty Credit, but how did it come about? How did you actually decide this is something I want to build and actually create a company around? And why chores? So chores was kind of the mechanism for me to say, like, what's something that's done fundamentally on a day-to-day basis so that when you get older, you you can kind of have a fundamental aha moment, right? So and I, I couldn't really think of anything else. So to, we, while we're a chore tracking app, it's really the mechanism behind how we're trying to teach about credit. And I mean, I had the idea like 2010, 2011, I remember sitting down, I was at a telemarketing job and I was like, how... And it came to me. I was like, you could teach chores and kitty credit. So something comes to me like that. And then I just go on these like unnecessary, like day of research tangents. I, I like bought the domain again. So we, we already went over the naive business plan. I had another one. I think Kickstarter was out at the time. So around like 2012 or 2013, I had this like, we needed like $10,000 to launch and build the app. And it was like, if the perk was like, if you invested $1,000, you could be on like the board of directors I wish I could find the page. I'm trying to look for it. Like I, I still can't find it. I hope it's there because it's, it's like hilariously bad. Pretty much I could have been bought out for like 15000 If You know what, Evan? One of the things that I'm hearing a lot in your story, though, is fearlessness, right? Because there's some folks who would say, yeah, I, you know, if, if I couldn't feel like that page was really perfect, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable putting it up. You know, and again, this is a hallmark of a lot of entrepreneurs. And, and maybe it's not fearlessness is probably not the right term, but but determination to overcome fear or to sidestep it. And so this is just another example. It's like, now you can look back and say, yeah, this is probably mistakes I made. But at the time you were like, let's go, let's do it. For sure. It was knocking it out the park. So yes, yeah, so I like, but I, I own the domain for years, just dropping $150 a year on GoDaddy for no reason. Cause I'm like, one day I'm going to do this app. No idea how to build an app. Uh, and then it wasn't until 2017, 2018. And I was like, man, I, I could do this. You know, I was mentoring kids at the time. Uh, you know, my, my credit score was in a good space. It's time to talk about this. So I started to like really research like what it would take to build an app. And then luckily, buddy of mine, Matt Cohen, who's who's on the team now, he's, he's uh, also, in addition, running a uh, startup with Ricky Williams. It's an astrology dating app. It's pretty cool called Lila. And we worked together to build out the initial wireframes. And I started like figuring out how all that works. And then we started researching app developers and just going down that rabbit hole. And then I just started studying and just taking in as much as possible. So, I mean, these past two, three years have been like a crash course in tech, but I just ask questions every step of the way. So it was, but it, it stayed on ice for like seven years. Yeah. And I think, you know, you talked a little bit about Matt Cohen and, and finding that co-founder, which I know a lot of founders have questions about, would love to know, how did you build that relationship with Matt? And then what took it to the next level? So the Katie Credit conversations just started with balconies and beers. You know, we talked about it like three, four, five. He's like, oh, you really like are trying to do this? I was like, yes. So we, we would just sit down and we'd spend like four or five hours and like really go through the wireframes. And as he saw me build it out, then he was like, well, we got to find an app developer. And, you know, I went on like Upwork and some other places and started making a short list of, of app developers we thought would be cool based on the budget that I had, which wasn't much. And then set up interviews with them one by one and like rated them all like on who we thought would be decent. And it's like, man, but you know, the ideal as I started reading more was to, was to kind of find your CTO in-house. 
And then so we, we went from it being potentially an overseas developer to potentially being a U.S. developer. It was a company we were going to use based out of South Carolina. And then luckily we found a CTO, right? So at the time he was a top tile developer, had a master's of science in finance and a personal pain point with credit. That's kind of been the common denominator amongst everybody on the team at this point is like they all were affected by credit and like, yeah, no, it sucks. It needs to change. I'd love to, to help. So it's, I mean, that's been super helpful because this project has been bootstrapped for so long until recently. So being able to get people to do things and be like, I don't really got it, but like, I will, <laughs> you know, it, it helped a lot. But yeah, no, it's, you know, once we cranked that out, we found our CTO and then we just, you know, we really got to work. So, that, I mean, this is an important thing, you know, to Veronica's point, really, the idea of convincing other people to come on board on something that is, you know, let's call it what it is. I mean, there's a lot of risk, right? Not just the risk of the business itself and the idea, but like professional risk and opportunity cost of like not making salaries or whatever, or using your time for things that don't like pay income. What's some insights you have, I guess, and maybe this is just part of your your salesmanship, but how do you how do you think about like if I'm sitting across the table and you're trying to convince me to come join the team, how, like what's been the thing that you think is like that gets them every time? Is it the personal pain point? Is it is it the opportunity? Is it you? I, I always say I think there's a little bit of a cheat code with this project, right? Because it kind of pulls at the heartstrings. Like, let's change the youth. Nobody's going to be like, no. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like there's there's that that helps a lot. I mean, I, part of it is me, I'm sure. But like, I think a lot of it is just, it's a culmination, right? It's like, we're all driven towards a common goal. Like we see a tangible way to get there. Everybody has their role to play. There's really no like overlaps. And, you know, I, I give everybody a, a, you know, a voice. So somebody can be like, Evan, it's a terrible idea. I'm, I'm happy to hear it. And if, I, if I'm like, yeah, you're right, it's terrible. We won't do it. And we're out you know, be like, we're going to go with it. I'm sorry. But like, you know, being able to have like a healthy level of communication has always been the case personally and professionally. So I would say that's had a lot of it. And because it maybe because it stayed in my head so long, I have a very strong vision about it. And so that unwavering vision probably helps too, because there's been many times, especially when you say trying to teach you about credit, it gets thrown into this financial literacy bucket. So like, oh, you should just teach how to save or how to invest. I'm like, no, like credit We'll start with credit and and we'll make the most credit focused next decision. And then along the way, I'm certain other components will come into play. But I mean, we've been trying to be knocked off our course many, many different times and go in different directions. And I think what you said is very key in terms of being able to articulate what is that vision and then finding folks that align with that vision and not wavering on that vision, I think is really important and critical in early stage, especially as you're trying to build out your culture and and all of these things. So, you know, for founders listening, I think articulating that vision early on, especially as you start to look for CTOs and, and folks beyond that, is really important. Hundred percent. Tell us a little bit about how it works. Like, what what are the features, and like, how does how does it work exactly? So it's it's pretty simple, right? Like, and it's in its public beta form now, which is available to download on the, on the iOS. So you parent comes in, they sign up, sign up their kids, um, and then they add their chores, right? Make your bed, brush your teeth, clean your room, do the dishes. We prefer that you add up, add five or more chores, right, to get the maximum experience. Five chores, three rewards. After you've added the chores, then you add the rewards. So the rewards could be, 
it could be monetary. So it could be $10 for 10 bamboo bucks, which is what they're, they're called right now. It could be time outside with friends or it could be an, an actual item. It could be shoes, right? And then the kid now comes into the app and they see how these things have been set up and they have their chores. So it's like, hey, mom, I made the bed. I did the dishes. I didn't clean my room today, but I brushed my teeth. Right. So every component of that will hold a weighted factor on your credit score, which is from zero to 100. And the algorithm is designed to parallel FICO. So, you know, your payment history is the biggest component when it comes to your credit score. So if you miss a chore, it's the biggest component. When a parent sets up the chore themselves, they can determine the priority of the chores if it's low, medium or high. So if if you were supposed to brush your teeth, which is a high priority, at least it should be, and you missed it, it's going to affect your score more than like making your bed, right? Like whatever the parent says. The utilization, your bamboo bucks that you get weekly, as long as you're, the, the way we have it default set up is, is if you're saving at least 10% of them, you're not going to get penalized for utilization. So we're not saying you can only use 30% of your bamboo bucks like you can in, in, in the real world before you're dinged. But we wanted to just kind of create that simulated environment. The average age of your accounts is like the average age of your chores, right? So it's not spanned out over 10 weeks, right? So let me 10 years. So if you have it for like six weeks, you're getting your maximum point allotment there. If you have five or more chores, that's like a healthy credit mix. And then your inquiries, you're not penalized for them until after your like your fifth ask in a week. So you're just doing a lot. If you're just asking for everything under the sun, scores got to come down a little bit. So scores will go up and down? Based on the, the so and then whatever your scores for the week is basically uh, the percentage of, of how much bamboo bucks you get for the week. So let's say your credit score is 80 and you're supposed to get 10 bamboo bucks for the week, you'd get eight. And just like you can't start out with perfect credit as an adult, can't start out with perfect credit and kitty credit. To get a perfect score, it would take a minimum of six weeks. Are the parents combining this tool with discussions around credit building? Or is that something that kind of comes later on? We are aiming to make that conversation easier for them because we find is the parent that downloads the app in the first place for their kid probably needs help understanding it themselves. So we're trying to simplify it. So it's, it's kind of a two-gen educational approach to where we're saying to the parent, this is how this factors into your kid's credit score, but this is how it works in real life. Right. And then for the kid, it's just it's simple. We're not saying we want seven year olds to implicitly understand FICO. We just want to be like when they're 18, they're like, man, it's like when I didn't make my bed that day. It's like when I missed my car payment. So that way they're, they're understanding the mechanics of it. I think it's a behavioral masterpiece, right? Because it is about gamifying it. And for a lot of us, I mean, I'm in the fintech business and and FICO still has some it's a little bit opaque. <laughs> right. It's like you do something and you think, oh, that should pump my score up and it's like, hmm, that didn't really move or, but just acknowledging this idea of the feedback loop that, okay, if I do this, it results in this. If I do something else or if I miss something, which I think is probably as important, the idea of missing, right? You know, at the end of the day, credit score is is about consistency and reliability and predictability of your ability to repay, right? And so it's all about history and consistency that you've done in the past. So I think it's a great idea. Now, you said seven-year-olds. What's the age that you're targeting? So any credit is designed for kids ages four to 12. We're building out. Four. What chores are you doing at four? But here's, so here's, here's what we're trying to do. We want to redefine what a chore is, right? Because a chore doesn't necessarily have to be, it can be something like hug your mom, hug your dad, right? So we're, we're still trying to search for like that verb of like, what could it be to be like just the activity itself? 
because we don't just see this being used at home. It could be used in the classroom. It could be used at a, a summer camp, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, for four to 12. And then, you know, we, we are intending to build out a platform for teens and first time credit users. And is the app on the parent's phone or is it if the kids have a phone, it's on their phone too? Or It's intended to be able to be used on multiple devices or one device, right? So the way that we coded this, everything that we've done from our business model to the way that we built it to the way that we're charging is, is really intended to benefit the family that needs to learn about credit the most may not necessarily have the most financial resources at their disposal. So the way it works on one phone is there's parent mode and kid mode, right? Can't assume there's more than one phone in the household. Over 75% of kids ages four to 12 have access to a smartphone, but it's not necessarily their own. So the way it is, is when you're in parent mode, when you go to child mode to give it to your kid, essentially they can do whatever they want with their chores. But if they, they can't approve or deny or change any settings, that's only in parent mode. And the moment they try to go back, they would have to re-enter the password, right? So if, for example, with your kids, if you wanted to use it with your kid, you just tapped on their profile and then they stay in, it stays locked in that kid mode, right? So that way it can, it can operate on multiple, multiple phones. I'm envisioning an Alexa plug-in where it's like, hey, Alexa, tell mom I made my bed. <laughs> I can't yell that out right now because I have one in the house. And then she'll just replay it back like, I don't know that function yet. <laughs> Who are your kind of early adopters? Who have you seen really, you know, pick up kitty credit and take off with it? And does that change as you scale and grow the company? We think it'll change a little bit because our, our approach now is B2B2C. So we're working with organizations and municipalities looking for unique ways to engage with their audience. But, it, it, you know, if, if we look back on what we could have done, I think we really could have done a better job at fact finding where our, our users came from. We have over 5,000 families on the app, which in the grand scheme of things isn't a lot, but we, we literally spent zero dollars on marketing. It's just been all organic interest in what we're doing. And, and we have over 50,000 chores completed. So they're, they're coming, <laughs> you know, and then like, so we're, we've been trying to figure out from them what they like and what they don't like about the app. You know, some of the, the biggest things that we've seen that we, we want to add are the ability for kind of a, like a vacation mode. Right. So like you have these chores and then it's like, you know, be, you know, the other apps that are out there, right, like they're chore tracking. It's not based on a continual schedule. There's no score component with it. But with, with ours, there is. So if you have these chores that you're doing weekly, but then you all go on a ski trip, you don't want to be penalized for that. So we want to be able to provide that and then, you know, ability to have one time chores and things like that. But as we grow and scale the organizations and municipalities, we feel that those unique groups will help us with engagement because there's a secondary push. To use them, you know, this particular space, the engagement challenges that we have, like while all parents mean well and want to do things for their kids, it can be a chore to get parents to track chores. So we're really trying to simplify that and just really do everything that we can to get it embedded and to having them use it on a continual basis. I can tell you as a parent, my kids are teenagers. And every week I have to say, as I look at the garbage piling up, whose job is it this week to do the garbage? And I, I was like, I don't know. We I haven't written down. They're supposed to be responsible enough to organize it themselves. And yet I'm still, who is supposed to do the garbage? I don't have any kids, but that same thing gets said with me and my spouse. Yeah, it's like, whose word is it? He doesn't like to use the term chore. So we're trying to think of another word as well. But, you know, it's life maintenance activities, right? There <laughs> we go. LMAs. That's right. And it, and have you, have you, uh, maybe this is still being um, evolving, but like the business model and how you make money, has that been coming to fruition yet? Or is it still early for that? So with the organizations, we charge per family unit per year right now. 
And then also what we're building out in-app is a product recommendation engine. So think like a Credit Karma for families where we recommend different parents to uh, different products to parents based off of geolocation and age and express need. Um, so that way it becomes a resource for them. So to really get into like how we're building around the engagement, like we're focused on three components right now, the in-app educational content itself, right? Outside of just simply the scoring model, building a r- robust reward offering for kids, right? So the ability for, you know, real world acceptance of money, being able to use digital gift cards and then rewards from partners, right? So we're working with YMCA Atlanta, we're working with Equifax and Equifax Foundation. Let's say they want to give tickets to the Atlanta Zoo, for example. You know, you'd be able to, to digitally distribute that reward. And the parent side, right, to help with that engagement too, is we want to have products for them that actually serve value to them. So they're not just going into it for their kid, they're actually going into it for themselves. It's like kind of a credit karma effect. You know, you're going in, you see what your Vantage score is, but then you see all these different tools that may be available to you. And so as you think about, I mean, you obviously have a big vision, you know, if we look down the road, like how do you define success? If you thought to yourself several years from now and, you know, you're the next unicorn or whatever, how do you define success for this company? So I think we we look at Kitty Credit essentially as like phase one of what we're trying to do, right? So like a scaling to teens and first time credit users, where we actually want to we want to be able to distribute our own cards to them, and we want to change the methods of how credit is issued, right? Like if it's based simply off of you know your, your first time credit user and you're using metrics around income or whatever the case may be, they can still be determining factors that are biased and don't affect positively the underserved, the unbanked, the underbanked communities. So we think education can be a methodology for de-risking. So we're in the process of trying to make that happen now. And if you combine those things together, we think that's kind of a credit education ecosystem package that can be replicated in global markets where credit is either a new thing or just doesn't exist. So like emerging markets or third world countries. If we're teaching countries how to effectively instill credit, then we're we're in good shape. I like that. I, I have a business in India in the fintech space, and I can tell you credit is just in its very early stages there. There's a lot of opportunity globally for sure. We're going to take another short break, and we'll be right back with Evan Leapart from Kitty Credit. You're a visionary founder building the next big thing, but your ever-growing to-do list is slowing you down. Well, lucky for you, getting things done just got easier. Introducing Afriblocks. Afriblocks can connect you with the top freelance talent in all of Africa, and they will manage the project for you. We have vetted thousands of software developers, graphic designers, social media managers, and virtual assistants who can help you save time, save money, and build better. Get it done right the first time. Visit afriblocks.com and tell us Dan sent you to get 10% off your first job. So we're back with Evan. So Evan, tell us a little bit about the journey of how you funded this entity. So obviously it's been percolating for a long time. You've had the URL for a long time. And then obviously now you're kind of off and running. So how has it been funded? Have you been trying to raise money? Are you going to raise money? Tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, the the irony of this all is that like when I started this, I had great credit. And then in order to, you know, really, because I was bootstrapping everything, I really went into my own personal credit and just maxed things out to get things to where it needed to be. You know, I, I realized that this is it. Like, I'm, I'm totally cool going all in on this project. This was always the business I wanted to do. So, I mean, I bootstrapped, you know, about 
collectively put together like $50,000, I'd say, over the course of this. And, you know, up until this seed round, which we're going through now, we hadn't raised more than a total of $200,000 to get it to where it is. And um, it just, you know, scrapped everything together so we could pay our CTO. It was like, look, I, I got you. I'm going to sell you something now. I'll, I'll do this next week and then give me like three months and I got this. So just, you know, piecing everything together piece by piece. And then, you know, where I didn't have money, I, you know, I knew I had equity and just, you know, working that balance as much as possible and still trying to hold on for dear life to, to your project too. That was how I got it here. And, you know, now we're in the middle of a, of a seed round that we're doing. Tell us about your raise and, and how you're thinking about, you know, who you're partnering with or who you want to partner with. And how do you think about that as the founder of Kitty Credit? So we've made some traction there. So pretty notable people. But for me, it's always fell into three buckets, right? Like you're either identifying with who I am as a founder, right? Like be it personally or just, you know, my my journey as an underrepresented founder. Secondly, you identify with the ecosystem I'm in, right? Like a year ago, it wasn't necessarily cool to say you're a Miami-based business. Now it's like the greatest thing you could say. It's the weirdest thing ever. I've lived here for 16 years to see Miami Tech at the forefront is funny. And then thirdly, we're mission aligned, right? Like if you don't see credit as like a problem, probably not the best fit for this project because we're not deviating from that, right? Like that's like the one unchanging factor is that we're super focused on demystifying credit first. So I looked through those three lenses before, you know, even really having the conversation. And and I can definitely say we, we have turned down money from the wrong type of investment. It's just either for the wrong reasons or trying to take us in a different direction. That's really great clarity around how you filter your investors because a lot of people um, that I talk to sometimes entrepreneurs are like just you know, they almost view it like just get a list of investors start at a <laughs> try to find you know a contact or a warm intro and just go down the list where and then Veronica obviously could offer the investor perspective but I think the criteria you laid out is probably what the better investors use for themselves too right they want to feel like they add value that they're aligned that they see the vision that you you know, that you're envisioning. And so that makes a lot of sense. I think some of the best things founders can ask investors are one, who are your LPs? Don't be afraid to ask that question. You know, whose money are you investing into my company? And then how do those LPs values align with what you're trying to build? Right. And then two, you know, trying to understand, okay, I, I know who your LPs are, but let me talk to founders you've invested in, existing portfolio companies. Do references on the investors because they're doing references on you. You can absolutely flip that coin and ask for references. And hopefully if they're good and open, honest investors, they'll probably just offer that up anyway. Not as, as super true. You know what would help me? Because I used to get really beat down and upset by the process. I'm like, you don't get it. And I was like, I, what I realized was that and it just, I, I try to give founder friends this advice because I, I started taking it less personally is once I realized that I'm trying to raise money from people that are trying to raise money, that got easy to understand. It's like, it needs to make sense to them so it can make sense to somebody else when they tell them about what we're doing. I really just started looking at it from that lens and, and you're, you're absolutely right. Like you start asking the right questions and just saying like, look, this is a partnership. You get a little more confident in what you're doing and what you're talking about. But I mean, that's just, I think that's just the nature of repetition. I'd love to hear advice for other founders who are going through this process who may not have had as much experience on the sales side as they grew up and as they were trying different, you know, entrepreneurial endeavors like yourself. You know, how do you think about telling your story, telling uh, Kitty Credit's story, depending on who that investor is that you're going to meet with? Like you said, they're raising money as well. 
So how do you think through telling that story and connecting with that investor on the other side of now Zoom calls? So one, if you're sharing your deck, make sure your deck is up to par, right? It doesn't look like you just did it using clip art. But then secondly, I would say like, just don't do your deck and then tell your story based off of, uh, off of your deck. Like do the opposite, right? Like write down your story first and then have that essentially match, match the journey itself. Like I always start out my pitches now by like putting people in the space of understanding credit, right? Like think about when you, when you got your credit card for the first time. Think about some of the first purchases you made. Now, think about when you saw your credit score for the first time. Who understood how that even happened or worked? And then like people were like, mm, I don't really remember. And it's like, exactly. And then I go into my pitch. So I would just say, make your story captivating so they can understand your problem. I can't even imagine what it's like to be an investor and just have to hear about 80 different business models and just really separate them. But I know I would remember the stories. I know I remember... I remember the founder and, you know, especially if you're pre-seed or seed, I know, and I don't know what stages you all are, you know, investing in Maverick, right? But like just in in general, I I think the earlier you are, it's going to be about you, the founder, right? Like series C, like I don't need to hear, I don't need to hear Robin Hood's CEO's story. Like I'm in probably, (laughs) right? But the earlier it is, it's like, how will you be able to execute? So make sure that you sell your vision as a founder would be the most important thing. That's great advice. And I didn't share, but yeah, at Mavron, we do seed in series A. So to your point, a lot of what we look for is what is that story? What's going to compel this founder through the ups and the downs to pursue this company for at least the next 10 years? You know, we want to make sure that you're in it for the long haul, that you're passionate about this problem you're trying to solve and really try to get deep into understanding the why. And I think also sometimes founders can get caught up in hey, there's other companies that might be doing something similar to mine. So how do I differentiate myself? I think the story is one way to differentiate yourself. But don't be afraid to share really why you are unique and why you will win in in whatever market you're playing in. So I, I love that advice, Evan. So let's talk a little bit about being a Black founder. So you, you helped found Black Men Talk Tech. I'm pretty sure I think I saw that you went through Founder Gym. And so these are environments that are credible in terms of the, the tremendous accomplishments and success of the people who participate in them. But maybe help us understand what's the advantage of being a part of programs that some people may say is somewhat exclusive, maybe, right? Because it's defining by certain groups even though it's groups that have been left out for a long time. What do you see as the advantage as an entrepreneur to being a part of those kinds of programs? So, you know, Black Men Talk Tech Conference was co-founder of, and we did that in partnership with Black Women Talk Tech, which is an amazing organization on year five or six at this point. We're in year three. And for me, it was really just about my journey as a founder. And, and I was like, I know what I'm going through. So I know there's other people going through the same thing. I would love to be a part of something that uplifts the the community. You know, we, we know the numbers and we know like how little of the money comes to us. So we wanted to, you know, be a part of something that, that changes that, but not just pointing it out, but like celebrating it. Right. So like, look at these incredible founders, look at these incredible investors, look at these incredible technologists and just build it out. Founder Gym was cool. I, I was in cohort six which was one that was specifically dedicated towards Black founders. And, and there's so many people in that cohort that are just killing it. So we've always stuck together and supported each other. So that's been pretty cool. So I, I think through shared experiences and like just being able to express your, like in confidentiality, like your pains and the things that you're going through, like you, you really build community, 
right? Like any type of program I've been in, you know, and I've been in others too. Like, I think the most important thing hasn't necessarily been what I've learned in terms of the actual lessons. It's really just been about the people and, and connecting with them. I would be nowhere, maybe somewhere, but not as far as I am now. Like if I hadn't been grateful to have the connections that I have, you know, and then the conference has been cool because it's definitely given me additional connections that I can then build upon. But I've, I've always tried to just for the sake of doing good business, keep the two worlds separate. Like this is the conference we're talking about, or this is Kitty Credit. That's great. And so tell us, I wanted to loop back to this. Give us the real scoop. I mean, hype or not for Miami? Is it legit? Is there really a tech community being built there? It's so I, I think we're trying, right? So like you got people coming down and but the, nobody's experienced the Miami summer yet. That's that's what I really like. Miami summers are not the wave. Like you don't it's not it's not fun. It rains a lot, super muggy. So it's like is this COVID exodus or are you here? But I mean, people are buying places. So Places aren't staying on the market. So, I mean, there's, you know, headquarters are being moved here. Those aren't things you can just say whoops and reverse. So, but I, there's there's definitely a collective effort amongst the people that have been here for a while. And then the people are, that are moving down here of, of significance to try to collaborate and say, look, don't come to Miami with a bunch of people from the Bay and then a bunch of people from the Bay eat at one particular restaurant. And then you connect with other people from the Bay. And now it's like these two worlds, the old versus the new. So, you know, this is like we have collective group chat. We, we all are in on, on, on WhatsApp and stuff. And it's been cool. You know, a couple coffees and Miami is for some people listening are probably in like bubbles right now. And like the streets are empty. We're not that <laughs> here, right? Like we're, we're open, which, you know, depending on how you feel is good or a bad thing. And it's interesting. So like, I see, it's funny. I have people come in town and they're looking around like, like, this is crazy. I'm like, I know, <laughs> I know. Um, but yeah, it's, so I would say I got to give it time. You know, I, I, like Rome wasn't built in a day. Silicon Valley wasn't built in a year. And I, I think this will take a while too. But it's it's good to see because it's something that we've longed for. People here is a long time. I've always wanted to keep the conference here because I'm like, let's not be another tech conference in New York. Let's be the place. Let's be the event that people want to come to in Miami. And like now it's actually the place to be. So it worked out. I love Miami. It's beautiful. And uh, although I have relatives who live in uh, the Boca area and I worked for my uncle as a teenager doing landscaping in the summer. We we had to work from like six to ten, and then like three to eight because in the middle of the day, forget it. <laughs> Hundred and ten in the shade with humidity, and you wait for like you said, it rains for about fifteen minutes in the afternoon, and it's super hard. But uh, it's beautiful. I mean, it's it's a beautiful place. So I'm just so excited that there's this diffusion across the country, right? I mean, we got Atlanta, we got Austin, uh, we got Miami, you know, DC's picking up again now, you know, so we got these places that are becoming, I won't call them mini Silicon Valleys, because Silicon Valley is his own thing, but they're places where innovation is being supported and encouraged and blossoming and that's good for everybody. I just read about a founder who, you know, built a billion dollars in revenue business out of Alabama, quietly. That's amazing. <laughs> Talent is not geo-specific. Yeah, it's it's not. That's what we need to understand. It's I, I was seeing some today too. They were like, "There's some VC now has a thesis that they the requirement is that you're not in Silicon Valley." Yeah, so I mean, we're getting close on time here. This is an awesome conversation. Maybe like uh, we always like to just ask this question, and 
however you want to answer it, but going back in time to, let's just say you've been entrepreneurial for a long time, so you've learned a lot of lessons, but just around kitty credit, right? If you could go back to talk to yourself as you're beginning launching the business, you know, what would be the things that you would bring up to that Evan say, definitely do that or watch out for this or, or just, you know, have your eyes open for some specific things. What kind of advice would you give yourself? Oh, I would have definitely set more realistic timelines for when things would occur. And then I would have leaned in more on in a concrete business model versus just how cool the idea is, right? Like I was really naive when it comes to building a backable business versus a bankable business and building something for scale. It just it was just a world I didn't know. I come from a mom and pop type of environment. I had a cleaning business and auto transport business along the way. So these were things where it was just you tried to generate a little revenue, not like doing venture math. So I'd have probably just read a little more and just understood, you know, got smarter around a business model and, and like unit economics and financial modeling, things that if you do them early and then people are interested and they see you've already done that, I think you just you bypass a lot of hardships along the way. Good advice. So, you know, we always want to leave with a with a shout out and a, and a call out to our audience. Can Unfound Nation be helpful to Kitty Credit in any way? I think you all continuing what you're you're doing is great. We're now in the the midst of really reaching out to organizations and municipalities that are looking for unique ways to engage with their audience. So, if you do feel that there's any companies in alignment with that, so you know the the closest line verticals to that are like nonprofits and financial institutions. And then, yeah, I mean, as far as investing, we're halfway through around anybody that you feel is a decent fit there. I know it's a super common ask, so focus on the first one. But yeah, no, that's that's fine. Keep doing what you're doing. It's amazing. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate you both. Awesome. And uh, you want to just give us your social media handles, URLs? How can we find out more about Kitty Credit or about Evan? So for me personally, it's at Evan Leapart. That's E-V-A-N-L-E-A-P-H-A-R-T. And that's same for Instagram, Twitter, and Clubhouse. And then Kitty Credit is just at Kitty, K-I-D-D-I-E, credit with a K, so K-R-E-D-I-T. And that's the same for Instagram and Twitter. And you said you're on the iOS app store. Android coming soon? Android was there. We have to make a couple changes. Thank you so much, Evan. I know you thanked us for doing what we do, but we wouldn't be here without amazing, fearless leaders like yourself. So really, thank you for doing what you're doing. Appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for the time. This has been awesome. We'd like to thank our guest, Evan Leaphart, our guest co-host, Veronica Parks, and our sponsors, Virtual Lab and Afroblocks. This podcast was produced by yours truly, Dan Kihanya. Our music was arranged by Michael Kihanya. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or simply go to foundersunfound.com forward slash listen to. That's listen T-O. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn at Founders Unfound. Thanks so much for tuning in. I am Dan Kihanya, and you have been listening to Founders Unfound.